Good morning, Five Forks. It's my privilege and my honor to be with you here this morning. As Steve said, I'm the uh, student director. I've been on the job for the incredibly long time of about three months now, and so I'm still figuring where everything is. This is actually my second time here at this campus. I was hanging out with your students a couple of weeks ago as we launched our Student Connect groups, and so uh, as being student director, I must put this out there. If you are a student and you are not plugged into our Student Connect group uh, that Brandon Shiley oversees, we have Elliot, uh, Emma, Cassidy, and Adam all overseeing on Sunday mornings happens at 9.50. Uh, let me extend that invitation to you. You need to be involved because of two reasons. Number one, primarily Jesus, right? Jesus will change your life. And then number two, uh, we give you free Starbucks right now every single Sunday that you show up. And so if for no other reason, go get some caffeine so you can stay awake during my sermon, right? So be that as it may, uh, hey, we're, we're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, also, students, um, let me mention one more thing. Wednesday nights, if you're not a part of our midweek, happens at downtown campus, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's something you want to be a part of. As Steve said, uh, the Lord is up to some, some really amazing things uh, throughout all of our campuses. And I'm a little biased, but I think a lot of that is happening in our student ministry and just our regular weekly meetings there. And so, again, if you're a student, make sure you're a part of their those two things. Today we continue with our Jesus Alive series and we're rounding into that final turn, uh, what we call his passion week. That is the last week of his life, the most monumental week, uh, I would say in all of human history, a week that changed everything and we still feel the impacts of 2,000 years later here this morning. And so as we look at this series, Jesus Alive, and we hone in on his Passion Week, uh, what we will find is a, are a couple of differences with how Luke has walked us through uh, his narrative in the past few weeks until now. You see, really, from Luke 9, 51 until today, Luke has been pointing us towards the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. Luke 9, 51, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And so he makes a beeline to where we find him today. And all throughout that 10-chapter travel narrative, Jesus uh, did miraculous uh, things. He taught in miraculous ways. Lives were changed. But it's all been to get him to this final week here. And so as we get to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we will find a little bit of a, a change, or not a little, a lot of change in terms of how Luke will narrate the rest of this Gospel. And that is, he's been moving at a breakneck pace the previous 10 chapters. But today and in the coming weeks, you'll find him slow it to almost a snail's pace as it becomes hyper-focused on Jesus as we continue answering the question we've been asking every week with this series. And that is, who is this Jesus? And then the subsequent question, how do I respond? What's the proper response here? That's, those are the two questions you should be asking every single week. And today is no different. And so we ask this question today, who is this Jesus? What is he about? Who is he? Well, the answer we're giving today is this. Jesus is king, just not the one you'd expect. Jesus is the long-awaited king. Jesus is the long-anticipated king. Jesus is the king who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies and sayings. He is that king, yet he's still not the king you might expect here today. If you're like me, you know, living in this world long enough... Life is really a series of unexpected events, right? 
I've learned that I should just prepare myself daily for unexpected things. Life with a toddler is a series of unexpected events, right? I have a little three-year-old girl and literally not a day goes by that is normal and routine. One in particular, the day she was born, January 26, 2019, uh, my wife was about uh, 10 days or so from her due date. And we were entering into our biggest student weekend down in Newberry. And as we did this, I had one, one request to my wife. I said, this is our biggest weekend. We have hundreds of students gathering in Columbia. If you could just hold off through the weekend of having this baby, that would be great. In as much as you have control of this. Well, as I said, life is a series of unexpected events. Well, Saturday morning at about 1 a.m., I get the tap on my shoulder and it's, I think my water just broke. And I was like, oh boy, here we go, here we go. So 7 a.m., we're checking into the hospital and literally got 30 minutes of sleep that previous night. And I'm sitting there in the early afternoon and we're talking, I think, with a nurse or doctor. And they say, oh, she won't go into labor for a while. It'll be like 7, 8, 9, on into the evening, something like that. And I said, okay. So I did what any loving husband would do. I went and I got some Starbucks because I was tired, right? I have a little bit of a coffee addiction, if you cannot tell. So I came back with the Starbucks and I'm standing there talking to my brother-in-law and we're probably bemoaning the sad state of USC sports, which three years later, we're still doing the same thing, having the same conversations. Uh, but we're standing there and all of a sudden I see people just blowing in and out of her room. And I'm like, something's going on. I might be hard-headed, but I can pick up on that. And so I said, okay, I'm going to walk in and check this out. And so there are doctors and nurses flying around the room, my mother-in-law standing there, and I just instantly go into a fog because it starts to hit me. They're turning this hotel-style room into a we-about-to-have-a-baby-style room, right? And so as this is happening, like, it dawns on me. I've been the guy that has prepared. I watched the YouTube videos. I read the new father guy. Like, I geeked out on all the stuff. I went down so many rabbit holes in preparation for my little girl coming. And here it was, like, D-Day. And I'm standing there with my cup, and all of a sudden, all of that goes out of my mind. Because the unexpected, like... She's coming, she's coming soon, not five hours down the line is happening. And I didn't know how to respond. And so I just went in this fog and I'm standing there with my big venti dark roast cup of coffee. And what starts to happen is I drop my coffee. As, as they're setting the room up, I drop my coffee. And instead of just leaving it for a nurse or somebody to take care of as would have been appropriate so I could be by my wife's side, I'm hyper-focused on the spilt coffee. And so I start cleaning it up and my mother-in-law and nurse is saying, no, Corey, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, 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 I need to do this. And so I pick it back up. The top was still on by some way. And I'm standing there again. And all of a sudden I drop it again. And there's more coffee all over the floor. And my wife's still getting prepped to have a baby. And I'm over here focused on spilt coffee. And so then I pick it up again a third time and I drop it again. And there is now coffee everywhere. I think my mother-in-law, maybe a nurse or something, they almost had to force me to set the coffee cup down. And so finally I went and was by my wife's side and did my husbandly duties at that point. But here's the thing. I, I was so caught off guard in that moment, right? I had prepared. I, I knew somewhat of what to expect. I'd been to the classes and all that. But when that moment hit, man, it was all unexpected. It was all flying by the seat of my pants. Even hours later as I would hold my little girl in my arms for the first time, I was like, my goodness, this is nothing like I ever expected before in a good way. You see, this morning, what we're talking about with this portion of Jesus' life is a lot bigger than even that moment in my life of unexpectedness. 
And that is, we may come in here this morning in one of few areas. Either we're walking in this morning and it may be your first time and you may have never heard the phrase, Jesus is King. And you may have no idea who this Jesus is. If that's you, man, you're in the perfect place this morning. And I'm so glad you're here. We're going to introduce you to him today. But there may be others of us in here. We know Jesus. We've read the Bible. We've sat in the classes. We've done the Christian things. But yet we've made Jesus on our terms. And so this morning as we're presented with the biblical picture of who this King Jesus is, it's going to be a king that maybe we haven't expected. And if that's you here today, then the question becomes, are you willing to submit to the biblical picture of Jesus? Or maybe there's others of you in here, you're sitting in here today and you're saying, well, I know who they say that Jesus is, but I don't want any part of him. You're going to see a part of the crowd today that said that very thing. And Jesus will issue a warning to them and actually a call to turn back from that. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 19. Uh, as you're turning to Luke 19, we'll pick up in verse 20, or excuse me, we'll pick, pick up in verse 30. Uh, passage actually starts in verse 28. The backdrop of this, as we said, is Jesus is now entering into the final week. He's coming into Jerusalem in for his Passion Week. And as he does this, he kicks it off with what we know of this uh, pivotal Sunday moment called the triumphal entry. So if you're there, go ahead and turn. Uh, Luke 19, we'll pick up reading in verse 30. And before we get there, here's what we're going to do this morning. As we talk about Jesus is king, because you may be sitting there and saying, well, Corey, I, I know he's king, but tell me more about this king. Or, Corey, I don't know it that he's king. Why should I follow him? What is he about? Well, glad you asked. Four characteristics that will tell us this. The first is this, the king is humble. It's the first thing we're going to see. The king is humble. Look with me, verse 30. Jesus says to two disciples, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, as we said, he's entering into Jerusalem. At this moment, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and he dispatches two disciples. That's all we know about them. They're just two disciples. We're never told anything else about them. And he says, hey, go get me a colt. You're going to go find it at such and such place. And you're going to say such and such thing if anybody asks you a question. And you're going to bring it back to me. At surface level, right, if we're not reading this with spiritual eyes, this is kind of a weird scene, right? You think about it from just a, a worldly standpoint. If this scene took place in my new neighborhood where we are now in Fountain Inn, I wouldn't know how to react, honestly, right? My wife and I, this is really weird. We drive the same exact car, two white cameras. They're great on gas. But if you were to show up to my house like these two disciples did, and you started getting in my car and I walk out the front door and I say, what's going on? And you say, the Lord has need of it. I say, oh, go ahead, take it. And then I look forward to insurance check, right? And get a new car. But that's insurance fraud and now it's recorded. So please don't do that. Actually, probably what I would do is be like, what in the world are you doing? And then I'd probably chase you out of the car there, right? That's, that sh should be what happens here. But what we find is that there's a completely different picture. It's a much deeper meaning. These two disciples are sent out with the mission to go get a colt. 
We're told far more about the cult than we are about anything else in this part of the passage. And the cult seems to be of peculiar interest to Luke. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, the cult is representative of what we find in the Old Testament of Zechariah 9.9. And it says, blessed is the king who comes on the back of a cult to bring salvation. Just to paraphrase that uh, Old Testament passage there. You see, at this moment, Jerusalem had swelled to millions of people in terms of it was Passover week. That is the biggest Jewish uh, festival, not festival, but celebration, if you will, that was them looking back to God delivering them from Egypt in the book of Exodus. It was celebrated with reverence. It was celebrated with much anticipation. And this one was really special because they had heard about this Jesus guy. And there was this kind of bated breath question, is this guy going to show up? And maybe some of them, maybe like some of us think in terms of kings and royalty, that Jesus was supposed to roll into Jerusalem with angel armies and kick down the Roman door and put the Jewish people on top forever. That is the prevailing thought of a lot of people in this passage. The king they were wanting was not the king they were about to get. The king they were wanting was one that would have demanded a red carpet rolled out that would have demanded trumpets or played and demanded his due response from the people. Yet what we find from Jesus is the exact opposite. The only command that Jesus gives in this passage is go get the colt. That's the only thing he says. He doesn't ask for the most majestic horse out there or the uh, carriage or anything like that. He just says, go get me a colt. We already see from the get-go the humble nature of this king. So the cult that is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 is brought to Jesus. And understand this, Jesus never asked to be set on the cult. It's the disciples who recognize him. Jesus doesn't say, put me on this animal. No, what we see rather is in verse 35, they set Jesus on it. It was their own prerogative. It was their own initiative. It was their own recognizing that this Jesus who we have walked with for the past 10 chapters in the uh, travel narrative, this Jesus is the king from Zechariah 9.9 that we have been waiting for. Now, you may say, well, they didn't completely understand it because they're going to fumble the ball later on in the week, and they will. But what we find right here is that they, at least for this moment, are getting it right. And they're saying, this is the king, our humble king. Why is it important for us to recognize Jesus as the humble king? Here's why. In our world, when we start talking about power and people of influence and kings even, or leaders of state or even leaders in the area, the prevailing thought and wisdom in our world is this is that if I have power, I want you to know it and I want to be recognized, right? Roll out the red carpet, let the people know, let me wear the badge, let me wear the crown, and I want you to know how important I am and that you should then respond to me appropriately. Yet the king that we see from the Bible, the king of kings and lord of lords, is the king that just simply says, hey, go get a colt. I'm going to be put on it. And he lets the people draw the appropriate conclusion there. What does this communicate for us here today? is that this is a king in a humble nature that is entirely approachable for you. Maybe you hear about this Jesus and him being sinless and powerful to raise the dead, to heal the blind, to uh, exercise the demonic and, and so forth and all the amazing things that he has done. And you say, I can't approach that king. 
He would never want anything to do with me. Well, he is putting on display here his humble nature for you today to show you he is easily approachable today. So even if you sit there in a mess today, understand this. This king is humble enough for you, yes, even you, to approach him today. Leads us to the second characteristic. Not only is he humble, but he's worthy. Passage continues on, and it shows us why this king is worthy. Verse 36. And as he rode, that is Jesus, along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So we see not only is he humble, but he's worthy here. As Jesus starts to descend upon the Mount of Olives and as he's looking now towards Jerusalem more and more, what we find is that this euphoric scene starts to unfold. That is a praise parade starts to break out. Again, Jesus has never orchestrated any of this, right? This is what's naturally happening in the right response of the people recognizing who he is. And they're saying, this is the one that is due his praise. This is the one that is worthy of these things that we are saying. And what are they saying? Well, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this is quoting Psalm 118. This is a pre-exilic psalm that is a, a psalm that was uh, quoted before the people of the Old Testament, the people of God, were kicked out into exile because of their sin and disobedience. And so in Psalm 118, it's a psalm that would be quoted uh, again and again. The people would have known it. But there's one small change here in this psalm. They had a small phrase to it. You see, as it reads in Psalm 118, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you'll notice here, they say, blessed is the king. And it's not Jesus directing this, it's the people recognizing this. They are recognizing that he is the king of kings, that he is the worthy one whom they have waited for. Not only that, but he's bringing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. One commentator said it this way. We've heard this familiar phrase in Luke's gospel all the way back in the birth narrative of Jesus where angels and shepherds were praising him. Now we find the disciples in those crowds praising him. There in the birth narrative, they said, peace on earth. Here we find peace in heaven. He's not talking, the people aren't talking here, and the psalmist isn't talking here about worldly peace, right? Peace between countries or borders or families. No, the peace that is offered here from the worthy king is this, the peace that every single one of our hearts longs for. It is a soteriological, salvific peace. What does that mean? It's fancy words just to say it is the peace that you need that only Jesus can give to make you right with God. It is a spiritual peace. If you don't know Jesus in here today, you don't know that peace. For those of us who do know Jesus in here, we know this peace very well. The peace that is mentioned is a peace that only Jesus can provide. Only the worthy king can bring with him today. And so they continue praising, blessed is the king, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And the euphoric scene unfolds and you see just this magnificent scene as they, they descend the Mount of Olives. 
All these people shouting, yet there's one little catch, right? There's always one little catch. There's another group in that crowd, and those people are the Pharisees. And they look at him and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're watching all of this unfold and they say, not so fast. Why? Because they look at this king and they say, this is not the king that we have expected. This is not the king that we want. We want the king with the armies kicking down the doors and flexing his muscles. We don't want the humble, lowly king riding on the back of a colt. Give us that king that we have said we wanted. Because this one we're seeing, we don't think he's really king. And so what they're saying to Jesus is, what is taking place is due for the rightful king, and you're not the rightful king. So they say, shut it down. This is blasphemy. Notice what Jesus says in response. I tell you, if these were silent, that is those people that were praising him, the very stones would cry out. What he's saying is, if I shut these people up, all of creation is going to cry out. Because understand this, the humble and worthy king always gets his praise. The humble and worthy king will always get his due. Why? Because he's the only one worthy enough to get it. None of us, none of our kings in this world, none of our leaders, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. One scholar said it this way, that inanimate objects knew more about the one who was on the cult than the learned scholars of the day. The ones who stared at the Old Testament scriptures, the ones who would have known Zechariah 9.9, the ones who would have known Psalm 118, the ones who would have taught a Bible study, the ones who maybe sat at Five Forks campus, the ones who, who studied and were in every Bible study maybe you could sign up for, yet they were missing the boat right in front of their eyes. Inanimate objects knew more than these supposed learned men of their day. Why? Because these men weren't willing to submit to Jesus on his terms. Understand this. You may sit in here with a preconceived notion of Jesus that is comfortable and easy for you. But I can assure you that is not the biblical Jesus. And what the Bible says then in response to that is that we only get Jesus when it's on his terms. We can only be right with God when we come to Jesus on his terms. We only come to Jesus on his terms. It's his terms or no terms. And so the proverbial questions, you already see them coming out here, and we're going to ask them again in just a few minutes, is this. How do you respond to the king who is worthy? How do you respond to the king who is humble? Because you have to respond. There is no, I'm just going to ride the fence, because silence in that aspect is a rejection of the king like the Pharisees. There are only two responses here, rejoicing as the disciples did or rejection as the Pharisees did. And the question becomes, which is our response here today? It leads us to the third characteristic. The king is broken. Jesus continues here. He continues drawing near Jerusalem. And we're told this in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, With it you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." 
So here we see not only is our king humble, not only is he worthy, but he is broken. What, how do we see that? Well, you see it in verse 41. He draws near to Jerusalem and he looks upon the city and he weeps. This isn't getting misty-eyed or, you know, sharing a couple of manly tears, then you're done. No, what the Greek says is that he is sobbing. This is only the second time in all the scripture that we see Jesus crying. Jesus was sorrowful over Jerusalem back in Luke 13, but he didn't cry then. The only other time that he cried was in John 11 when Lazarus had died. And here he looks upon the city and he weeps and we say, well, why does he weep? He's weeping because he knows the supposed city of peace has missed the one who truly offers peace. They've had every opportunity. In fact, you can even just rewind it as recently as Luke 9, where the travel narrative really kicks off. And then he gives them opportunity after opportunity until this point to turn back to him. Now, let's be clear. This is not the whole city of Jerusalem that we're talking about. But these are the ones in Jerusalem who will reject him or who are rejecting him. And so his heart is broken. So you may sit in here today if you don't know Jesus and say, well, God delights when he gets to reject and punish people. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. Exhibit A, verse 41, he wept over it. Jesus' heart is broken when people reject him. God's heart is broken when we choose perishing over eternal life in him. He weeps and he pronounces sentence on Jerusalem. He says, there is going to come a day that you're called the city of peace when no stone will be left unturned. We know that day would come about. Titus in AD 70 would roll down with the Roman army and ransack the city of Jerusalem and tear down this temple that was the center of Jerusalem. And it would be a horrific day, one that still reverberates even today. And what Jesus is saying is, you had your moment. You had an opportunity to turn, yet you chose to reject. And understand this, rejection of Jesus has a high cost to it. Even today, maybe not necessarily a Roman army is going to roll up to your door and ransack your house. But what it does mean for us here today is that the cost for us rejecting Jesus like the Pharisees is eternal separation from God. It's staying separated from the God who longs for us to be united and reconciled with him. It's not living the life that God has created us for here today. And so that is the cost for rejection. You can choose to reject today, but understand the costs that are associated with it today. And understand this, our Jesus doesn't delight in rejection. He weeps over hearts that reject sin. Longing for them to turn back to him. Leads us to the fourth characteristic. The king is powerful. The king is powerful. We've got a very vulnerable picture of Jesus in the previous one, him weeping over Jerusalem that would reject him. And now we find the king is powerful. And this part of the passage begins to take place actually on the next day. All that we have just talked about took place on Sunday of his Passion Week. Now we're into Monday morning. And notice Monday morning in verse 45, we'll read verse 45 and verse 46, where he makes a beeline for. Verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What we find taking place is one, the high priority of the temple in Jesus' eyes. 
He makes no bones about it. This is number one stop when he gets to Jerusalem. And as he walks into what would have been the court of the Gentiles, that is a place where even those who weren't Jewish could have walked in and observed and even maybe walked a little bit closer towards the temporary presence of God that was there. What he would have seen is instead of a house of worship, a house of commerce. You see, at this point in the temple, you could go and buy whatever you needed for the Old Testament sacrifices that were expected of followers of God. You could buy lambs, you could buy grain, you could buy your, for your peace offering, for your sin offering. You could buy it here. And that was innocent enough, but what had happened over time is because these leaders, these uh, Pharisees, because they had chosen to make the God of the Bible in their own image, in their own convenience, in their own comfort, they had turned the house of prayer into a house of commerce so that it was far more about making a buck than it was about leading someone to have access to God. And you'll notice in scripture, nothing enrages Jesus more than when people are kept from accessing him. And so as other gospel writers tell us that he is not only enraged here, but he flips tables and he chases out the money changers of their day, rightfully so. So that the house of God can now be a house of prayer and that everyday men and women like you and me could access him again. This is the heart of our king. He is powerful enough to go into the center of Jewish life and set it right. And not only that, what we know is that Jesus is far more powerful than just this moment. He's powerful enough to face down a bloody cross that is coming within a week in Luke's timeline. And he will defeat sin and death at that bloody cross and that empty tomb. But not only that, because you may be sitting here today and say, yeah, Corey, I've understand that. But this king that I've heard about that says there is a cause for rejection. That, that says I must leave my sin and my comfort and my routine if I'm to know him. Is he really going to make good on his promises? I'll tell you this. He's never failed on one yet, and he never will. And so then when we look forward to Revelation 19 at the end of the Bible, we get a picture of this King Jesus coming back. Not the lowly king riding on the back of a colt, but we find King Jesus as the clouds split apart, coming back on a majestic white horse with a sword in his hand, coming to get his due, his due praise. And what we're told is, even if you sit in here today, and even if you persist for the rest of your life rejecting Jesus, that on that day, every single knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether you willingly do it or not, on that day, our King Jesus comes back and displays his power at hand. But what we're told is that that day hasn't happened yet. There's still time. Just as the people of Jerusalem had time to turn, they had time to turn back, so you have time today. Rather than rejecting him, rather than sitting in silence, the call is to rejoice. For some of you in here, that's asking the question, how do I know Jesus? I'd love to have that conversation with you right down here at the end, of, as we start into this next song. But for others of us in here, it needs to be going public with that rejoicing. We've been good rejoicing in Jesus in private. We're good praying in our homes and leading our family devotions, but when's the last time we went public rejoicing with him? For some of you, just to be quite honest, you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, but for whatever reason you haven't been baptized, what greater way to rejoice in our King of kings and Lord of lords than to be baptized and make the public profession 
of Jesus changing your life. For others of us in here is simply living out what we worship in here every single Sunday. The king is due his right and worthy praise. It's a matter of whether we're gonna give it to him or not. How do you respond to King Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the one who has sent the king that we have always needed. Maybe not the one we've expected, but the one that we exactly need today. Lord, break us of our comfort, break us of our convenience, break us of whatever would keep you from or keep us from praising you, King Jesus. Let us rejoice like those disciples on that day that the king has come and he is bringing peace with him. The only one who could bring that peace. So Father, would you do what you can only do in this moment? We ask these things in your name. Amen.